All right, would you come with me this morning, please, in the New Testament to Matthew chapter 27. Now, this is Easter Sunday morning, and traditionally, uh, normally, you would be uh, preaching about the resurrection, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, we will talk about that tonight. A lot of what is being done tonight uh, with the youth and with the senior drama people and the young, even the Sunday school kids, a lot of it will have uh, some, uh, something to do with the resurrection. Uh, but this morning, I thought instead that we would uh, again gather thoughts around the cross, <clears throat> but particularly around some of these unusual, strange, supernatural, miraculous events that surrounded Christ when he was on the cross. And so if you could read from Matthew 27 and verse 45 and following. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Amen. From Jesus' birth until his death on the cross and the subsequent resurrection, supernatural phenomena always accompanied these events. Angels, you remember, heralded his birth. That mysterious star that brought those wise men from the east uh, that took them to where the young boy lay, the Bible says. We see that the sun was darkened. The earth quaked. The rocks were rent. The veil in the temple was torn in two. Matthew Henry called these miraculous events the frowns of heaven. The frowns of heaven upon the earth for the injuries and indignities of men that they heaped upon our Lord. Four of these things we want to mention this morning. The sun was darkened. The veil in the temple was rent and torn in two. The earth quaked. The rocks split. And the graves were opened. And so this morning we will examine these strange, unusual, supernatural events and see what we can learn. First of all, the sun being darkened. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, 
There was darkness over all the land. Luke 23, 45, it simply says, Then the sun was darkened. Now this happened from 12 noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Three hours of darkness descended upon the whole land. Now this was not an astronomical event. Some has tried to, those who try to deny the truth of Scripture, has said that this was a solar eclipse. However, that would be impossible because this was the feast of the Passover. And the time of the Passover was always held when the moon was full. And so you cannot have a solar eclipse when the moon is full. There is not the correct alignment. And even if it had been, eclipses only last moments. The total eclipse is literally just a few minutes, three, four, five minutes at most, not three hours. And also, so that gainsayers could not argue about it, this was not at the evening time when the sun would naturally be setting. This was when the sun was in its zenith, started at 12 noon. These three hours, as you know, from 12 to 3, anybody that's ever been in a hot country knows that that is when the sun is at its brightest and it is at its most strongest, most powerful. And God produced darkness when the sun was at its brightest and at its strongest. And John G. Butler remarks on this and he says, God likes to display his power at the most difficult of times just to show that he is God. Now, Matthew says it was all over the land. Luke says it was all over the earth. Now, it's hard for us to be absolutely sure whether this was localized or whether it was much further afield. The feeling is that it was much further afield. Matthew Henry quotes Diocinus of Heliopolis in Egypt as saying about this particular darkness, Either the God of nature is suffering or the machine of this world is tumbling into ruin. Other historians at the time in various places as far away as Africa also talked about this unusual, strange, long period of darkness. And so we can gather from that that it would seem to be that it was more than just localized, that it was much further afield and that uh, these hours of darkness even developed into neighboring countries. Some says over the whole earth. Well, half of the earth would have been in darkness anyway. So whether it was that hemisphere as well, we're not sure. But when it says darkness here, the word for darkness here means very, very dark. Now the movie we showed here last night uh, of the Passion of the Christ, it showed the skies darkening, but certainly not dark uh, but scripturally, to be technically scripturally right, it was very, very dark. Blackness of darkness. Thick darkness. Now this must have been very disconcerting and actually very scary to those people watching. You know, even a normal natural solar eclipse, even though it's even only momentary at totality, it does have a strange effect upon both nature and men watching. You know, whenever the 
you know, of course, what eclipse is, whenever the moon comes between the earth and the sun, and, and, and the disk of the moon, because of the distance between the earth and the sun and the moon, when that disk comes over and it seems to bite into the sun, and then it gets slowly darker and darker and darker until it's fully disk of the moon totally covering the disk of the sun, you get that's what's called totality, which only lasts for moments. At that moment, leading up to that moment when it's getting darker and darker, the birds stop singing. Nature goes quiet. And men are awed. I don't know if you've ever seen a total eclipse. But if you're in a crowd of people that's watching a total eclipse, men are awed by this. In fact, it, it, it makes strange shadows on the ground around. And it's an awesome sight to see that, even though it only lasts just briefly a few moments. But what if it was to last for three hours? And what if you couldn't see the corona of the sun, that where you see the sun sort of leaking out from behind the shadow of the moon? What if, you, if that wasn't there? What if it was complete darkness for three hours? You can imagine when that would happen, it would be quite frightening. And I can imagine the crowds growing very, very still. And a chill would run up their neck. And I'd imagine those in Jerusalem, never mind at the cross, I'd imagine them wondering, what is this? Think of it, a little boy saying to his daddy, Dad, what is this? And his dad would say, I don't know, son. I don't know. I can imagine maybe 80-year-olds or 90-year-olds and children asking their grandchildren, children, grandchildren ask their grandparents, say, what is this? They say, we don't know. We've never seen this in all of our lifetime. And nobody ever had. We've never seen it since. So this is a strange, strange sight. What could this be? Why? See, God was throwing a cloak over this sad spectacle. Even nature itself is frowning upon man's wicked deeds. Remember the bloodied, mangled, naked body of Christ, the dear Son of God, was hanging on the cross at this time. And so for those three hours, he would be hidden from the stairs and the gawping spectators and mockers that was around the cross. Darkness is often a sign of judgment in Scripture. Zephaniah 1.15, the prophet calls this day a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And Jesus often spoke of darkness being a sign of judgment. Matthew 25.30, cast you the unprofitable servant into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yes, Christ was taking our judgment upon himself on the cross. That's true. But God will also judge wicked man for the treatment that they meted out on his son on that day. You remember Egypt, part of the plagues that God sent as punishment upon the Egyptians for what they had done to the Israelites. Remember one of those plagues was darkness thick darkness so that you couldn't see your hand in front of you. There's something about thick darkness that's very unpleasant, very unnerving. 
those who were watching the crucifixion, they must have feared this darkness. Luke 23, 48, it says that some smote their breasts. It's a sign of fear and agitation. They smote their breasts. Matthew 27, 54, that when the centurion and those with him saw these things, they feared greatly, it says. Feared greatly. Darkness can produce fear and dread. But then after three hours, the darkness lifted. And it looks like that for the most part, men just went back to doing what they were doing. Isn't it amazing how that sometimes in life we get dark periods that pulls us up short, that makes us think, frightening sometimes. But then when it's over and the panic's over and the fear is gone, we go back to the old ways as if it never happened. And imagine that for many that's exactly what they did. So there is this strange, unusual darkness that covered the whole earth. Now before we look at the other phenomena, something else was happening at the same times as these events were unfolding. Because at 12 noon, that would be the time that the high priest who was Caiaphas. That would be the time that he would be starting his processional to the temple where he would slaughter the Passover lamb, the spotless, pure Passover lamb. That would be the time he would be doing that. And the darkness would continue until 3 o'clock and at three o'clock would be the moment when Caiaphas, the high priest, would be ready to slay the Passover lamb. And that would be the moment as he would be ready to do that. That would be the moment when the true Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus, that would be the moment when he would cry out, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost, the Bible says, the spirit. But at that moment, that's when Jesus cried, It is finished with a loud voice. It must have been a strange thing for those executioners to hear. They'd never ever heard anything like this. Jesus said seven things on the cross. I haven't time to go through all of those, but they were very poignant and very profound. And how he had the energy and how he had a voice even to cry out loudly. Only he knows. And so when Jesus said, it is finished, this was his victory cry over Satan. This was letting all hell know 
that the prophecies were fulfilled, that the scriptures had come true, everything to do with the cross had happened, it was finished, Satan was eternally defeated, the evil one was conquered, and Christ was victor. Amen. Then the veil was torn. Over in the temple, Caiaphas is now standing before the veil in the most holy place. In a moment, his plan would be to enter behind that veil. The only man in all of Israel who was permitted to do so. No one else, only the high priest. And only one time a year and only on this day. Very precise. Now there was two veils in the temple as had been in the tabernacle, which was the original one. First veil led into the holy place. And more than Caiaphas would be allowed to be in there, other priests would be in there officiating. And in the holy place, as they would go in, on the right-hand side would be the table of showbread. There would be 12 loaves of bread. Having time to go into the significance of all of this. And on the left-hand side would be the seven-branch candlestick that would be a light 24-7. And in front of them would be the golden altar of incense, representing prayer going up before God. And so priests would go in there and they would officiate, make sure the showbread was right, make sure there was oil in the lamps, make sure there was incense for the golden altar. Especially on this day, everything had to be perfectly right. And so Caiaphas would be there also. And he would be watching and waiting till everything's ready, to the right moment. And when the time would be right, then he would go in behind the second veil. He'd want to go in behind the second veil, which is where the holiest of holies was, the most holy place, where only he could go and only once a year. This veil in the temple was enormous. Sixty feet high. Thirty feet wide. Tradition says it was the width of a man's hand the palm of a man's hand. Tradition says that it took 300 priests to hang this veil. It was massive, thick, wide, tall. And there he's standing before it. And all of a sudden, God's two invisible hands reaches down and just tears that veil in two. And the sound of it, of the ripping and the tearing, must have reverberated around the walls of the temple. It must have struck terror into the hearts of the priests. Think of it, if you're an ordinary priest who would not be allowed ever to see behind that veil, not even to have a peek of an ordinary priest had just a peek behind the veil, God would have smitten them dead in the spot. Suddenly, before their very eyes, they can see into the holiest of holies. It must have struck terror into their hearts because they had thought at that moment surely they would die. 
I say it reverently, but only God knows what that wicked, evil Caiaphas, the priest, the high priest, was thinking at that moment. So his heart must have been beating wildly. Materially, this veil was different than the one in the tabernacle. It was much bigger, heavier, taller, wider. Materially, it was different, but doctrinally, it meant the same thing. It stood for the same thing. The body, the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this great veil... This curtain suddenly is torn and it falls. And at that moment, God was signifying that the curtain had fallen on the priesthood, on the sacrifices, on all of the rituals of man. It was over. In that holy place, there was no longer even the tabernacle. Sorry, there's no longer even the ark that used to be in the tabernacle, that used to be in Solomon's temple because Solomon's temple was raised to the ground and the tabernacle, the ark disappeared completely had hundreds of years prior to this. So even behind this veil, there was no ark. There was no presence of God. There's no Shekinah glory, no mercy seat. Because Jesus not only is our Passover lamb, But he is our mercy seat. He is where God's presence is. The priesthood is gone. No longer interceding for men. No longer the sacrifices would do. Christ, all of that was just the shadow. Christ is the substance. All of these things has their significance. He was the Passover lamb. His was the blood that was shed. He actually became our great high priest. Glory to God. The scriptures clearly tell us this. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, this, this, through the veil, listen to it, that is his flesh. His flesh was torn. And when God tore the veil, he was saying, look, My son has been torn. The way into my presence is through my son. Hebrews 6, 19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 1 John 4, 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, here is halamos. And halamos means atonement or expiration. And the mercy seat was the place where the blood was sprinkled to make atonement for the sins of the people, the sins of the nation. But now Christ himself has become the atonement. He has become the expiation. He has become the atonement. Now listen to uh, Romans chapter 3, 
Let me just read a couple of verses here in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God therefore set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the time, at the present time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Whom God sent forth as a propitiation. And do you know what my margin says about that word there in Romans 8? Mercy seat. Because that's what propitiation really means. The mercy seat. And Christ is your mercy seat. Aren't you glad that you no longer have to go through priests? Aren't you glad that you no longer have to bring a lamb to be slaughtered? Aren't you glad that it's not just in one special day of the year? Aren't you glad that through Christ when his flesh was torn, that the veil was taken away, that now you and I have the right as sons of God, believers in Christ, to walk into the very presence of God, into the holiest of holies. We can come before God's throne in prayer and we can do it every minute of every day if we so desire. Then it says, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. One early church leader records at the time of Christ's crucifixion that there were great earthquakes. Great earthquakes. Not earthquakes in and of themselves are not an unusual event in the Middle East. But at that time, at that very moment, to have great earthquakes. And when it says the rocks were split, the word for rocks is Petra, which means very large, huge rocks were split. Sally and I, whenever we go to the Philippines, whenever we make the journey from Malangapo City to Baguio City, where the other recovery unit is. Some of you Filipinos here this morning may be familiar, you've maybe even driven this part of the road. It's what's called the zigzag road. And the zigzag road was a road that was made through the mountains as a shortcut when the American army and so forth were there. It was built by the Americans and uh, we've been on it and it's, a, it's quite a road. I mean, you're driving right around the edge and through the mountains and you look over the side and it's just ravines and you don't want ever to go over one of those because you're done for if you have. But for the last time we were there and we were up that road, there had been a landslide just a few weeks before that and some of the rocks were as big as houses, massive rocks that had come down the mountain. Some of them had flattened houses. And uh, whenever I think of these rocks here, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about massive rocks the size of houses. And it says they were split they were rent, they were torn asunder. Nature itself is responding to this terrible scene. 
creation is acknowledging what man has done to the creator because Christ is the creator of the ends of the earth. John tells us that. And then, Matthew 27, 52 and 53, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming up out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now notice that this earthquake when Christ was on the cross, notice that it opened the graves and the sepulcher, sepulchers of the saints. However, they did not rise until after Christ rose from the dead three days later because Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And say, so, well, there's people resurrected. Jesus resurrected three people that we know of. Yes, he did, but they died again. But Jesus rose from the dead to die nevermore. And whenever you die and you rise again, it'll be to die nevermore. But you ought to be in the resurrection of the just or you'll be damned forever, a lost eternity, one or the other. So why did the graves open before then? so that men could be convinced that genuine resurrections were taking place. After Christ's resurrection, it says, many of the bodies of the saints arose and appeared in Jerusalem unto many. So people could go, if they so desired, and look at empty tombs and see that it wasn't ghosts they were looking at. But these were real resurrections. Some of these people maybe just died just weeks before. And suddenly they would appear. Were they seeing a ghost? Was it a phantom? Was it real? Go to my grave. Check it out. No bodies there. So God was doing supernatural things to attest to the authenticity and the genuineness of the one who was hanging on the cross was truly the Son of God. The Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world, as Clifford said, it was always part of the plan. It was always part of the plan, and Christ knew the plan. At Christ's resurrection, there was also... A great earthquake. Can I just read this? We're almost closed here just in a second. In Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath at the first day of the week, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. The word is MAGA. And we all know what MAGA stands for, don't we? <clears throat> Huge, enormous, gigantic. So this was no ordinary, usual earthquake. This was a mega earthquake. Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. And this is what caused this earthquake. 
An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And his countenance was like lightning and his clothes was white as snow. And the guards shook for fear and became as dead men. They so trembled and shook they fell on the ground. Became as dead men. So all of these events that were taking place they were unusual, strange, frightening, awesome. All proving that this was indeed the very Christ, Son of the living God. I wonder is that why that just weeks later <clears throat> When you read in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, In Jerusalem, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Hmm. Took some convincing for those old priests, those old Pharisees and Sadducees who so hated and despised Jesus of Nazareth that put him on the cross. that refused to believe in him. Something has happened. Something has shook them to the very core of their being. Something has turned them around. What could that be? Could it be what they saw, what they heard, what they felt? And then, when they saw the disciples, how they had changed, and how they had gone out preaching this Christ, whom ye have crucified. Peter said the day of Pentecost, said it several times. And they look back and they would remember those events. And the Holy Spirit would convict them of their sins. And a great company of priests became obedient to the faith. (laughs) Even the ones that were Christ's enemies were convicted and they came to faith in Christ. What a glorious story! What great truths. There's just so many facets to the story of Christ's arrest that we talked about, his crucifixion that we talked about, these strange events that we're talking about, the resurrection that we'll talk about tonight, all proving that this is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now you wonder why. You maybe sat this morning and you're wondering why we worship the way we do. You wonder why we get excited at times. Because we know this Christ. We have met him. He has changed us. We're no different than you are. But he changed us. That's the only difference. We allowed him to come in and change us. It was a battle. It was a struggle for a long time. I resisted a long time. But then one night, I bowed the knee. And I acknowledged him as Lord and Savior. And then all these things became clear. I could see it like I'd never seen it before. And Christ became my Savior. And he can become your Savior. And then all these things becomes clear. And you can see the truth of it. And you can see how God, the Father, allowed his Son to come on the cross to die for you. 
horrible as death as it could possibly be. But it was absolutely necessary because he had to give his blood for us. Had to do it. His innocent life for our guilty life. That's the message of the gospel. So isn't he wonderful? Aren't you glad at this Easter Sunday morning that we know absolutely for sure that we serve a living Christ? No other religion has a founder who lived and died and rose again and is coming back again. Only Christianity is absolutely unique. And thank God for Jesus today, man. Let's pray.